0: Morning, everybody. We are doing well today? Okay, the book of Numbers. The Hebrew title of this book is The Desert. It makes it a little more exciting. Uh, the desert is this, the desert or the book of Numbers is the part of the narrative that is about God's people and this place between. Uh, the place between Egypt and the promised land. The place between where God is calling them out and what God is calling them in. He's calling them into promised land. What is promised land? See, I think so many Christians, when we think promised land, we think heaven, in the sweet by and by. Promised land in the biblical narrative is a real place in this world. In fact, uh, in the part of the narrative that, that... we're moving towards, um, it too is the place between. It's, it's the place, it's called the place between because it's between all the nations. And that's exactly where God wants his people. He wants them right in the middle, right in the heart of his world so that his people in that place can partner with the living God to redeem and restore The world. Now, years ago, uh, one of our elders had to leave our church uh, because he thought I was a heretic (laughs) on this very issue of God partnering with us. And uh, he just said, "You know what? We come on. We don't partner with God. God does it all. God is the one who redeems. God is the one who saves. God is the one who restores." And of course. God does it all in Christ. But what God does in us to redeem us, restore us, save us, he also wants to do through us for the world, for the nations. And that's what promised land is. It's where God puts us, where we live out the call of God in partnership with, with him to redeem and restore a world that he loves. Even last week, um, Brian and his, his, uh, the wonderful job he did on the priestly blessing. Um, and that priestly blessing, I mean, God, it's his promise to bless us, to make his face to shine upon us, to be gracious to us, for him to lift his countenance, let his smile just fall all over us and give us his peace. But when you go to Psalm 67... And you have a paraphrase of this where it says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? As an end to itself? No, the next two words are so that. So that your ways may be known in all the earth and your salvation may reach the nations. All the peoples praise you, God. All the nations be glad and sing for joy because you reign. God blesses us so we can be a blessing to a world that he loves. So now where we've uh, come in our text, in in this part of the story, is we're we're really reaching the watershed moment of the book of Numbers. Uh, This is what this book is moving towards. It's possessing the land. And... uh, The Torah portion, because this is how uh, the Jewish people break this down, is Numbers 13 and 15, and each Torah portion has a title. This title is, in Hebrew, shalak. Shalak means simply to send out, and it's the story of God sending out the 12. Literally, send out means to apostle. God sending out the 12 uh, into the land. So, let's turn our Bibles to Numbers 13. And when we get there, we love to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna start reading at verse 17. The verses that I skipped are just the way that um, a prominent leader or prince is, is selected from each tribe. Um, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea son of Nun the name Yeshua, Joshua. Wow, this is all just foreshadowing everything that is to come. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, when he apostled them, he said, "Go up to the Negev and on into the hill country." And see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good land or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Tzene as far as Rehov. Toward Labo Hamath, there they went up to the Negev and came to Hebron where Hymen, Sheshe, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Who are the descendants of Anak? The descendants of the Nephilim. The Nephilim are the titans. I'm not getting into this this morning, but they look like giants. One of those guys still kind of lingers already deeper into the story uh, during the time of David. His name is Goliath. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranate and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. The end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. By the way, 40 is the number of preparation and testing in the Bible. God's preparing his people. He's testing them. When they came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites who live in the Nagav, the Hittites, Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites who live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, Caleb being one of the twelve. And he said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the other men that had gone up with him said, we can't. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it, and all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. We look like grasshoppers, like insects in our own eyes. And that's what we look like to them. This is God's word. You can be seated. It's really hard for us to get in the shoes. I mean, they, they've been in the desert now for two years. They know that the desert is not the end. Uh, the land is called promised land for a reason. It's the land that God promised to their forefather, Abraham. Um, it, it, it's It's their inheritance. So imagine this sense of excitement and anticipation. I mean, this is it. So what God does, he says, Moses, um, find one strong leader from each tribe and let them form a posse of 12 and let them, first of all, go into the land and search it out. In fact, one of the key words in this whole text, there's, there's no word spy. That's what we've kind of projected upon the text. They're not there to spy out the land. They're there to go into the land and look at it with their eyes and report back on what they've seen. So I just imagine this posse of 12, and, and, and there's certain things in the text as as they're journeying. I mean, I probably am projecting a little bit of uh, Lord of the Rings onto this, but come on. The Bible's more exciting than Lord of the Rings, and if we don't see that, we're just butchering it. These guys, these 12 are like the Fellowship of the Ring, and here they all go. They set off on this journey, and one of the first places they pass is the Negev, and the Negev means nothing to us. But the Negev is is where Abraham settled. It's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did life. Imagine them passing through that land and thinking about their great forefathers who went before them. They keep going north. They get to Hebron. That's where Abraham and Sarah are buried. I bet they came to that spot where they were buried and they all gathered around it. And they made their way further and further into the land. And they come back and they do what Moses said, bring some of the fruit. Ashgal means cluster in that place. They cut off this big cluster of grapes and they carry it back on this big stick. In fact, that picture uh, is um, one of the most famous pictures in Judaica even to this day. Like when I go to Israel... I I see this picture in some form at least 50 times. Uh, It's it's everywhere because this image depicts the land. In in verse 27, Joshua says this is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And and the vine or the grape um, in the ancient world, yes, they ate it, but it it was really, um, it was turned into wine. The vine is wine. And 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 wine to the ancient is a symbol of joy. It's the symbol of God's blessing. And this is what God is promising to Israel. Israel, um, my blessing to you, the the joy that I'm going to give to you is like this huge cluster of grapes. In fact, in Numbers 14, verse seven, Joshua's report, he says to the people, he says, this land is exceedingly good. And good to us is something less than great or perfect, but but good in the Bible here is is, is the word that God uses to describe uh, creation. It's what God uses to describe Eden. This is Joshua saying, that land is Eden good. And those grapes, those grapes don't just depict what God is to Israel, but they depict To the Israelite and to the Jew today, what Israel is to be to the world. Because the prophets pick up on this imagery. In Isaiah 5, um, God says, Israel, I planted a garden on a fertile hill and I cleared it and I removed its stones. And then I planted you in my garden as my special vine so that you could be this cluster of grapes of joy and blessing to the world. It's why the prophets, too, will will connect this imagery to Messiah, that, that when Messiah comes, the mountains will be dripping with wine, and not just any wine, but the finest of wines. And they say this wine will bring ultimate joy, ultimate blessing. It will wipe away all shame, and it will wipe away all our tears, and it will even... Swallow up death forever. There's a reason why when Jesus came, his first miracle had something to do with that. The mountains are dripping with wine. Look at that cluster of grapes. Would you right now say, yep, that depicts everything that God is to me. He is that much joy He brings that much blessing into my life. Can we look at that cluster of grapes also and say, yeah, that's who we are to the world. Would would, would the world look at us and say, yeah, that's that's what Christians are. That's what the church is. They're like this huge cluster of grapes, this fine wine, offering the world joy and blessing." Now we get to verse 31. I honestly, after reading this this week, thought this might be the most depressing verse in the whole Bible. Look at it. They come back with this, this great report, this huge cluster of, 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 vine, of wine, of, vine, of grapes, <laughs> and, but they say we can't. We can't take it. We can't possess it. At least that's what 10 of the 12 say. In fact, they give their reason for this in verse 28. They say the walls are too big and the people are stronger than us. Well, I get that except for the fact that this isn't just a land. To be possessed, this is God's promise. God promised it. The walls are too big. They're giants. Are we any different today? I mean, think about all the promises that we have in this book. All of them. All the things that this says about who we are and and what God promises to be and what God promises to us. And yet we're still saying the walls are too big. There's giants. I mean, think about all the fear today, all the worry, all the anxiety. And I'm not talking about out there in the world, I'm talking about right now in this room that, that we brought into this room. Some of you right now might not even be able to listen to what I'm saying because you're so anxious, you're so worried. There are so many things that we fear today, whether it be the fear of failure, the fear of not measuring up, the fear of rejection. Rejection. The fear of not being liked, the fear of not having enough or what we have being taken away from us, the fear of the kind of world that we live in right now. Fears unique to young people. Will I find my place in this world? Fears unique to old people. The fear of dying and will I be forgotten? Fears unique to, to men. Am I man enough? Do I have what it takes? Am I strong enough? Fears unique to woman, women. Am I beautiful? Am I lovely? Am I desirable? And then when you look at the text, in, in all these fortified cities with the, the huge walls are these Ites, <laughs> Jebusites, Amorites, Amalekites. What are the ites today? The ites today are all the isms that people are afraid. All these isms that that, that are a threat. And they are. They are becoming a real threat to the Christ follower. Whether it be atheism or racism or secularism, consumerism, hedonism, narcissism. Socialism, nationalism, liberalism. And these fortified cities have their walls, their giants. Or what about the realities that don't even fit into an ism, but the reality of even our government today and all the fear that that causes. Or uh, the media and, and all the fear that that causes. Or Hollywood and the elites and the fear that they bring. And then we start thinking that these realities are impenetrable, and, 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 and because they're impenetrable, we as Christians just retreat to our safe spaces where we keep these realities out. And I say, How dare we shrink in fear? How dare we? How dare we retreat? And here's the big question of the text. 12 spies went out. Those 12 all saw the same things. Looking at the same giants, the same walled cities. Why do 10 of them come back and say, we can't? Why do two of them, literally, if you read the next chapter, they literally tear their robes and they fall before the people. And they say, we can't. What's the difference? We're going to see the same reality later in the biblical story. Uh, All of Israel, including its king Saul, are going to be looking at this giant saying, we can't, but this little kid is going to show up on the scene and say, how dare we?" we say we can't, we can. Why are some of you afraid today? Others not. You're looking at the same reality Facing the same giants, looking at the same walled cities. Why do some of us fall apart? Why do some of us have just this unbelievable courage? I want us to consider the consequences of this fear. It's tragic. I mean, this generation, minus Caleb and Joshua, the two who stand up and say we can, will never enter the promised land. They're never going to enter their calling. They're never going to take the step of faith. They're never going to enjoy this land flowing with milk and honey. They're never going to taste the wine. They're never going to experience being a conduit of wine to the nations. Now, the Jewish commentaries that I read on this, and the reason I read Jewish commentaries, they've been studying numbers a lot more than we have. And they believe in numbers to be God's word just like we do. It was fascinating to, to, to just see um, their take because their take on this is completely different than my first take. I look at this at face value, and I am kind of understanding of Israel and thinking that Israel is looking at this at face value. And they're just looking at this realistically. They're bigger, faster, stronger. It's like when I coach. Um, Sometimes we'll play teams like Rockford, and I'll walk into Rockford with my 17 or 18 players. Half the kids are late there, getting there. and, And here comes Rockford, all 46 of them, marching Two by two, holding hands, out on the football field, and my guys are just looking at them, and it's—it's it's like it's game over already. That's when I get all giddy and start jumping up and down and tell the story of David and Goliath. <laughs> There's nothing like being David knocking off Goliath, right? And so that's how how I I see them looking at this. But see, if if, if you know this story in in its broader context, this isn't a land of giants. In fact, when you read Exodus 15, this is the song that they sang right after God parted the sea. And they got to the other end and they stood there and they watched God literally destroy the greatest military of that world. And, and, and in, in their song, this is what they sing. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. Because of the power of your arm, O oh God. Or a little bit later in the story, when, when they do send the spies into the land and they go into Jericho and And this woman there, Rahab, uh, tells them at that time about how everybody feels about Israel, namely Israel's God. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so so that all who live in this country are melting in fear before you because we heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, how you came out of Egypt. So who's really afraid? In fact, when you look at verse 32, it says that the the 10 who said we can't spread a bad report, a bad report here is literally a whispering report. It's a false narrative. It's part of the reason why they bring the grapes back, the big, huge grapes. Why would you bring big, huge grapes back only to say we can't possess it? they bring the big, huge grapes back to say there are big, huge people who eat these big, huge grapes. (laughs) Hmm? Listen, think about all the false narratives today. It's all about narrative. It's all about controlling the narrative today. This is why the media is such a dangerous thing. Never in my lifetime should Christians be thoughtful and discerning. Not just parking themselves before CNN or Fox. And we need to listen to our elders who have lived life, who have walked with the Lord. I remember saying that to our staff recently. And one millennial just went like this and said, I can adult myself just fine. And I thought, really? Are we that foolish? So why the false narrative of the 10 spies? And this is where I find the Jewish sources incredibly interesting. They say God's people didn't want to leave the desert. The desert has become Akuna Matata. No worries. And think about it. They don't have to worry about food. Every day God rains it down. They don't have to worry about water. Every day God miraculously provides it. They don't have to worry about where they have to go. Every time they have to go somewhere, it's God that tells them it's time to get up and go. Their tents are surrounding God's tent. Every day they they see His manifest presence in that cloud. Why would we want to leave this to go fight battles? Raise up an army, create an economy, farm fields. Worry about having enough rain. And all the other thousand things to worry about when you live in the real world. Listen to what Jonathan Sacks says. He's the chief rabbi over, over England. He's a phenomenal thinker. He says, The spies did not doubt that Israel could win its battles with the inhabitants of the land. They did not fear failure. They feared success. They did not want to leave the desert. They did not want to become just another nation among the nations of the earth. They did not want to lose their unique relationship with God in the reverberating silence of the desert, far removed from civilization and its discontents. You know, this is consistent with how God too later, through the prophets, speaks about the desert as as that incredible place. Remember Israel, our honeymoon? When it was all so good, when we were lovers? See, and even though God can turn our deserts into Eden, the desert is not the end, it's not the goal. The goal is promised land, where we live out our call as God's people in the chaos of the world. Then, why is so much of Christian spirituality this monastic, aesthetic retreat from the world? This is the mistake that holy men and holy women make to separate, to retreat, to escape, to move away from. But this is not the heart of God. God's heart, God's mission is all about engagement. It's moving towards the world. That's from cover to cover in the book. Made most manifest in Christ himself who left the comforts of heaven, gave up. He left this being next to his father, the father's side. He came across all worlds. He moved right into the chaos. He touched unclean. He became unclean he engaged the world in every way and first peter says but you are a chosen people a holy nation not so we can retreat from the world and wait for heaven you know what said just a few verses after that peter says live such good lives among the pagans live among the pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your goodness and give praise to God in heaven. And he still has the words of Jesus reverberating in his heart because Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't hide your light. You are the light of the world. Don't hide it. But let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. then why is so much of our spirituality today retreat? Biblical spirituality, it's earthy, it's gritty, it's blood, sweat, and tears kind of engagement. Even when you read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's instructions to his people, it's not about how to have a quiet time. And I'm not knocking that in any sort of way. But it's all about how Israel's is to be this responsible nation among the nations of the world. How Israel's is to be this, this responsible, set-apart, distinct people among all the other peoples of the earth. And, and the things that he instructs, it's everything from welfare to warfare how you treat the land, it's how you treat your employees, it's even how you treat your ox and your, and, and, and your flock, it's how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you care for the widow and the orphan and the alien, how you steward everything that God entrusts to you. That's biblical spirituality. And the clincher for me is the word avodah, which in Hebrew is the word for work. It's also the word for worship because our work is our highest form of worship. Because when we work, we are most like God. What do you think God creating the world is? It's work. God redeeming the world, it's work. And so our call it's, it, it's, it's not to fear the real world, but it's to enter the real world as God's partner, to transform it. And this is one thing the spies did not understand. My question is, do we understand that? What is your promise, land? Do you even know? What is God calling you to be? What is God calling you to do? Why do you wake up in the morning? What thoughts fill your mind? What dreams do you have? Let's make this plural. What's God calling us to do as a church? What's calling us uh, crossroads to be? What's holding us back? What's keeping us from from possessing the land that that God has entrusted to us? Because the New Testament talks about inheritance too. You know what our inheritance is? The nations. The nations. And I don't even know if we realize this. I have to remind myself of these kind of things after Michigan loses to Ohio State. To get my like life back in order. (laughs) I know. Woo. We are part of this massive story. This world-changing drama. That we're part of God's narrative. Which is blazing its trail through time and space to redeem all time, to redeem all space. Think about that. And how is God doing it? Yes, through his Christ but he's also doing it through his church. Paul has the audacity to say about the church, church, you are his body. That we are Christ's actual body on earth. Which means some pretty massive things. It it, it means that the church is not peripheral to the world. It means that the world is peripheral to the church. We are front and center, we we are center stage. We are the entity and the reality into which God lives and is doing this massive thing. By which he's living out this unbelievable drama, this cosmic drama of redemption. We can't then be relegated to the sidelines. We can't be like sitting in the stands. We need to be on the field in the game. Listen, I think we have the same struggles Israel had. Fear. We struggle with fear and comfort. And they're both related to each other. It's comfortable to be in the stands where we can watch, where we're safe. But the thing is, the more comfortable you are, the more afraid you are of losing your comfort. And that's where so many of us are today. Just trying to hang on to our comfort. So afraid and fearful that we're going to lose our comfort. You know how God deals with this? I think we need to hear this. Number one, He says, Israel, you're not ready. You still have a slave mentality, and you can see how deep the slave mentality is when you go to Numbers 14, verse 4, and the people are really, literally, trying to raise up a leader who will take them back to Egypt, back into slavery. God says, for 40 years, you're going to be in this wilderness. In fact, he says, you're going to die in this wilderness. You're going to die in this desert. And I thought about this this week. I don't think this is so much of a punishment. It is God's discipline, absolutely, but God's discipline too is his grace. This is simply the consequences of a people who have been deprived of freedom, who've grown up as slaves, who, who, who can't get used to anything but their change. And I don't want to throw this generation under the bus because God is going to use this generation to raise up the next generation, a generation who will know God, who's going to be filled with God who are going to be completely set free from Egypt and who are going to say we can do this I want a church that's raising up the next generation I want parents that that are part of this church that's raising up the next generation not to be good Egyptians, not to make it in this world, but who are filled with God and understand who they are in light of God and know the purposes of God and who are raised up saying, we can do it. Got to be about this. This whole thing has to do with identity. And, and, and Israel still is wrestling with a slave identity. They, they, they don't know who they are in God. So you know what God does? God gives them a uniform. <laughs> um, I, I was leaving Westwood Junior High this week, and right in front of me was a policeman. I felt like a little kid all over again. I was just looking at him and I was looking at the uniform he had and his two big guns on each side. And I literally started thinking, why don't I have a uniform? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, they get to wear a uniform every day. That uniform tells them who they are, why they are here. I, I see it when I coach football. So these kids come in scared and, 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 You put that uniform on them. You put those pads on them. Yeah, they're still scared at the beginning, but by the end of the year, they know they're a football player. God's like, you need to know who you are. I'm gonna give you a uniform that you're gonna wear every day. And this is how this portion ends. Go to Numbers 15. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels of your garments with blue cord on each tassel and you'll have these tassels to look at. I want you to look at them. I want you to wear them every day. Every day forever. All the generations. So you can look at them. And why look at them? So you will remember all the commands of the Lord and that you may obey him And not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. And then you'll remember to obey all my commandments. And you will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And I... (laughs) Why tassels? Well, in the ancient world... The people that wore tassels were the elites, royalty, kings, princes, princesses, uh, queens, priests, high priests. They wore tassels. It was their uniform. God is saying, you now belong to me. You're all royalty for the simple fact that you are mine. You're all kings, you're all queens, you're all priests. You're a royal priesthood. And God says, I want you to wear this. I want you to wear this every single day so you can look at that and know who you are not necessarily how you see yourselves or how you feel yourself to be or how others see you to be. I want you to see yourself as I see you. You are royalty. In fact, I love Isaiah 43. I think this just sums up so much. Um, what God is shouting at them through these tassels, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, and when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And then it ends with, because I love you, and you are Honored and precious in my sight. That's how God sees his people. And God says, I want you to wear that so you can know that. Because this word for see that's in God's instruction for the tassels is the same word that's used throughout. This, this is the, the, the thing that, that God says. Um, he, he sent them out to see, to see. And, 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 and when, then when they, they saw what they saw, it made them see themselves as grasshoppers, as insects. Because this whole thing, it's a fight to see. Faith is a fight to see. See? Hope is a fight to see. Joy is a fight to see. It's not to see as the world sees or as we even see, but it's to see ourselves and to see the world as God sees it. And when we know in the center of our soul that we belong to God, that we are precious and honored in his sight, that he looks at us as kings and queens in his royal family, we're going to look at everything differently. See, this burned in Caleb and Joshua, they're looking at the same walled cities, the same giants, but they're looking at them through God's eyes. That's promised land, and God says to us, you're mine. Do not fear, I'm going to be with you. We cannot look at walled cities. We cannot look at giants and conclude that we're grasshoppers. That is not who God declares us to be. And I think fear and worry and excessive anxiety are all these signs that we're not seeing correctly. That we're not seeing ourselves the way God sees us. We're not seeing the world the way God sees it. And therefore, we're still striving to prop ourselves up, to prove ourselves, to make a name for ourselves so we can have enough leverage to maybe protect ourselves. All in vain. And we know it, which is why we're scared. God says, I, I give you a name. I called you by name. You're mine. There's a second word in the tassel instruction that connects the tassels to the story. Numbers 14, 32 and 33, God declares. describes what the sin of the 10 spies and the people is. It's unfaithfulness. They didn't trust God. That word for unfaithfulness there is the same word for prostitute in God's instruction on tassels. It's the same word. God says you will look at these tassels so you won't prostitute yourselves again, so you won't become unfaithful. And really, all sin is prostitution. It's, it's, it's forgetting who we are. It's, it's leaving behind who we are. And it's where we sell ourselves and become something other than what God made us to be. And what did God make us to be? Well, that's where the commandments in this whole thing fit in. God says, this is who you are. This is what I made you to be. This is why uh, the Jew to this day delights in the commandments of God, because the commandments of God tell us what God made us to be. In fact, there's a story told in the Talmud, and the Talmud is this uh, collection of Jewish writings that date back even before the time of Jesus, of this this man who is going to prostitute himself with a prostitute and he started undressing and taking off his clothes until he got down to his tassels and he saw his tassels and in that moment he remembered who he was and he put his clothes on quickly and he ran out the door Why don't we have something that we can wear to remind us who we are? We're kings. We're queens, made in God's image. And the thing I love most about that story—it doesn't just end with the man running out the room, but it ends with this this woman converting herself to that man's God. Why, David? Why why could this little kid show up on a hill one day and look at the same giant that everybody else is saying we can't, and they're all in fear. And this little kid says, We can. And I see this little kid just running down the hill with his tassels just moving in the wind. It's because he knew who he was. He knew why he was here. That giant is standing on promised land and God says you are mine and when you walk through the waters I will be with you. Who are you? Who are we? What are we doing here? Isaiah 43 says it so well. Can you go back to the first part of that? This is who we are, but this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine, and when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You know what it says a few verses later in verse 10 and verse 12? Because this speaks to why we are here. God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. My witnesses. Let's pray. God, this whole thing is not about how we can muster up enough courage. David did not have confidence because he had confidence in David. David had confidence because he had confidence in you, and he knew who he was in light of you. And God, I just pray that we would turn our eyes off ourselves. God, that we would turn our eyes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.